Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another crazy episode of this thing we call our podcast. This is episode 100, which is pretty insane, so we're trying to shake things up a little bit and keep pushing the show to new levels. So on that note, today we're chatting with AJ Rajani. AJ's an incredible guy with lots of perspective from his varied career. I think he's a classic definition of a serial entrepreneur because, and he'd even admit to this, he's got that shiny object syndrome. That's exactly what makes him such a cool guest. And today we'll be talking to him about his new investment vehicle and cover all the interesting things he's done through those investments related to products and growth as he's joined in on some of the teams of the companies he's invested in. Now, before you start thinking, this might be a classic conversation with a VC, rest assured it isn't. In fact, two pieces of AJ's investment philosophies are, first, gigantic, almost unrealistic visions, and second, emerging markets. These are countries where the focus of the product has something to do with countries in places like Asia, South America, and Africa. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet at us at hack to start drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, AJ. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you and, and learn about all the amazing things you've been up to and all the incredible things you've done. So, I mean, before we before we dive too far into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where you're from and, and what you studied? Yeah, so I am from, I guess I grew up, you know, most of my childhood on, on Long Island and have, you know, spent most of my career primarily based out of, out of the city, but, you know, obviously going back and forth the West Coast a bunch and, and actually Indian Africa as well. But I studied economics, international relations, first at Cornell, and then I transferred to Wesleyan. Um, and then I kind of randomly ended up, ended up eventually getting my law degree from NYU Law as well. That's pretty cool. And so how did your passion for sort of entrepreneurship uh, really begin to develop? It's kind of a fun story. I think it, it probably started at a pretty early age. I uh, used to play around with lemonade stands a lot, um, you know, uh, kind of as a small business in my, in my parents' driveway. And, you know, it's a pretty commonplace, I think, place for, for, for kids to start. But, uh, you know, my, my parents didn't live in a neighborhood that got a ton of traffic. So we probably had 10% of the type of traffic you'd need to have even a, you know, a remotely profitable lemonade stand. Um, and so, I kind of like, you know, had an idea of like, well, I'm not having that much traffic that comes by. I'm not doing that many customers. So maybe I need to try to make more money off each customer. And so kind of did my first pivot at a really, at a really young age into like a fresh fruit Jamba Juice type thing where we, were, we would charge an egregious amount of money for a drink. Um, but uh, just that process, I think, stuck with me a lot. And, and, and kind of the entrepreneurial nature, you know, in, in school, I would, I would rather than trying to join the existing club, I would start up my own. So you know, when I was in eighth grade, we didn't have an environmental kind of like, you know, advocacy club in my middle school. And so I started one instead of kind of just going going down the beaten path. Um, and I think at a, at a more mature age, my first job out of college was at a private equity firm called Atlas Holdings, which was private equity and kind of like name only. And, and really, they had an active operating focus. So they would they would buy companies and hold them for 10, 15, 20, 30 years and really you know, seek companies where there was operational challenges that needed to be resolved and not just financing. And so from the very beginning, I kind of mixed investing and operating, I think, in my head. Um, and that's really what excited me. And, and that's kind of been a lot of what my career with the startups has been like as well. So from there, you led the product team at Grovo. What is Grovo and how did you create the opportunity to join the team there? 
Yeah, uh, good question. So I think it's interesting because Grove is probably the first company in my portfolio or, or maybe second, but where the definition of what it is now is probably different than what it was when I first got involved. But but Grovo, I think back then was really focused on being a first reliable destination for internet education at a time when uh, a lot of people, employers, you know, workplaces and software was moving to the cloud. And so there was a lot of kind of like friction between how do we move from Microsoft to the Google apps? How do we transfer, uh, you know, how do we like, you know, transform our marketing from newspapers to running Twitter ads and Facebook ads, just that general transition to the cloud and the digital skills that were necessary. Grovo was trying to solve that with simple um, and really bite-sized videos. And I think what, where they are now is a slightly more expanded um, and ambitious version of that, which is just micro learning in general and, and building in a truly like kind of next generation solution specifically for, for workplace training focused around these micro videos. So talking like 60 second type bite sized videos, they can take any hairy topic, whether it's digital skills or something that's less digital and using science and technology to really morph it into um, like this, this micro learning. So that's what Grovo is. Um, how I got into it is also interesting. I actually met Jeff Fernandez, the CEO of Grovo, when I wanted to leave private equity, he at that point was, he was like the, I think the head of business development at a company called Doosan, which was doing, was kind of like an early LinkedIn competitor and was really a top platform for job placement and recruiting for consulting and investment banking type jobs. Um, and Jeff was super impressive. I really desperately wanted to go work for him, but he was like, look, honestly, this role is not for you. It's, it's a lot more manual work and a lot less intellectual than it seems. And so it was like kind of like just stay in touch. And so I went through a couple of different iterations with my career. I was left private equities, built some technology projects, played around with tech, spent some time in India, eventually ended up in law school. And while I was in law school, one of my good friends from childhood was interning at Grove and was like, you should meet, you should meet these guys. And I was like, oh, I know Jeff. That sounds wonderful. And so my, my thesis with, with Grovo from the very beginning was that I really believe in Jeff. And let me find a way to get involved and be helpful. And it started with like helping them choose a good law firm to work with. And so they ended up going with Fenwick and West. And then they were raising some money. And I had made some money in private equity, not a ton. Um, and I said, you know what, let me just pony up and, and, and try to be, get involved. And so I wrote a really small check in their first really small seed round. And tried to be as helpful and valuable as I could. Jeff and I ended up, ended up spending a lot of our times, you know, our weekly kind of meetings about talking about product stuff. And so when the company started to have a little bit of traction and Excel Partners was going to lead a seed round, Jeff and I were both started exploring ways that maybe I could kind of be getting more involved. And so at this point, there were probably four full-time employees, maybe five. And they said, we need someone to come in and run product because Jeff was busy doing BD and investing. And he had his other co-founder focused on the video content side and his other co-founder focused on technology, but no one was really running. What's the strategy of the product that we're trying to build in the full user experience? And we both agreed that I was totally unqualified, but there was a chance I could do it well. And so I took my bar exam, canceled my bar trip and did a two-month unpaid internship with a company that I had invested in to kind of prove my mettle. And it, it worked out wonderfully. Spent two amazing years at Grovo after that. Left my law firm job, you know, um, on the table. They weren't that pleased, but they all obviously weren't that bothered either. And had a great run at Grovo, kind of kind of grew the ranks and joined the management team. I think it was the first non-founder on the management team and, and just had a blast at the company. That's a pretty crazy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I love how you were able to circle back with Jeff and, you know, join their team for two years. But your efforts there led to, you know, 30% and more month over month growth. And what's your approach to growth and product development um, as a whole? I mean, a lot of credits due to, to Jeff and some of the advisors I had a chance to work with. So Jonathan Geller from Facebook, or who's now at Facebook, and, and Brent Turetsky, who, who was at Chegg at the time and has done a lot of amazing things in his career. And it was really just started with like, 
you know, being honest to the data that we looked at and, and taking the time and effort to track customer data, user data, uh, behavioral data, and look at it. And so when I started at Grovo, I think, I think a lot of great uh, startups, and this is kind of part of my investment thesis, start with like a really grand, ambitious, almost obnoxiously ambitious vision and ambition, right? So Grovo was like, we want to, Jeff would tell me he wants to teach the world how to use the internet. And I was like, that sounds impossible, but I, I love the, the ambition of it. And so the company was really generally focused on internet education. And so if you look at it behaviorally at the very early stages of Grovo, you could use it in kind of three basic different ways. You could use it, you know, to find new sites that you've never heard of that you would want to learn how to use. So, you know, things like uh, Evernote or, or Google Apps, like we, we spoke about, whatever. Um, you could use it to learn um, kind of how to use sites that you had heard of but never really gotten started on. So Twitter was a key thing of like people don't really understand this around 2009, 2010, 2011. Didn't really get what Twitter was. Um, but they'd heard of it and they kind of want to learn more about it. So that's the second kind of use case. And the third kind of core use case would probably be you want to master something you've already started using. So you're a pretty active user of Evernote or Facebook ads, for example, but there are best practices. There are like hidden features. There are new updates being rolled out to that software all the time. And so those are the three core use cases. And we just started, you know, kind of looking at how do people actually use this and what's the, which one of those three use cases kind of leads to the best retention curve, creates the most valuable experience, creates the most valuable users for the company. And we found pretty early on that the people that were most likely to keep coming back to Grovo and watching videos on a weekly basis in an addictive fashion, um, and who would be most likely to upgrade to our premium subscription, were people who fit into the third bucket. There are people who watched a video on a product they used that taught them something that they didn't already know within their first session. So their first session being the first time they used the product. Um, and once we learned that, it started opening up a ton of doors just using that cohort analysis. We started, you know, we talked to customers to get there. Then we validated it with quantitative data. Um, and then we started running experiments. We would do, you know, email updates to people about products we knew that they had started learning about as they rolled out new features or as they changed their privacy policy. And we saw fantastic open and click rates on that. Then we were like, all right, this is kind of working. Let's try fixing, let's try like changing your onboarding so that the first thing you do when you come to Grovo is tell us what you use and kind of give us a sense of how well you know each product or what you know about it and what you don't. And then we know exactly what kind of video to serve you up. And we started seeing that the people that went through that flow and told us the products they use and, and watched one of those videos, they had a great retention curve. Um, and so although the company's not doing that exact thing anymore right now, I think that methodology and that kind of like exercise is, is really important part, part of the journey, you know, to product market fit. And, and it helped us drive our metrics. It helped us have a really great narrative to tell for our Series A, which, which Excel and, and a bunch of other awesome people also participated in. And, you know, that was a fantastic experience. That's amazing. So, you know, after two years, you you were then an early investor and the CMO of Inventure Mobile. For those who may not know, what's Inventure Mobile and what led you to both invest and join their team? Yeah, uh, good question. So Inventure is, again, a, like wildly ambitious company and it like kind of fits that heuristic of like a company that would never have the balls to start myself. And it's focused on a pretty impactful but huge problem of there are billions of people um, in the world that do not have access to any sort of affordable or convenient credit, um, which has major implications on a micro level for their own personal lives, um, as well as for economies in general. Uh, and so this is places like uh, East Africa, like Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, uh, West Africa, Nigeria, India, parts of Latin America, you know, much of South Asia. So Adventure was the basic goal was that how do we improve upon what microfinance has been able to do to, to fill that credit gap with something that's actually data driven and personalized. So microfinance works because instead of lending to one person, you lend to a group. 
and the the defaulters are subsidized by the repayers and the repayers are paying an exorbitant interest rate and because you have that huge interest rate you're able to like invest a lot of money in collections which can be aggressive and ethically kind of like gray at best and so inventure uh was started by shivani soroy who was a college friend of mine and i i studied microfinance and i was like this is brilliant you're right she's her basic thesis she spent you know a year studying microfinance i think with some large institution i think it might have been the world bank or, or, or some such or the imf and just basically found that like these these micro entrepreneurs um, in Indian Africa that maybe their businesses make you know like thirty twenty thirty dollars a day they make money they have credit like worthiness but there's no data to prove that, that that's the case and she started seeing that as mobile phones are penetrating these markets faster than banks and faster than bank accounts and faster than credit cards there was a there was an economic arbitrage opportunity and there was a gap that could really be easily filled if you just took the phone the data on people's phones and turned it into a credit score so that was the, that's the basic thesis of it and you know i can i'm going to get into obviously what we did with that thesis but i invested in it cuz shivani is amazing and a rock star it's a, it's a huge really impactful problem um and i ended up joining the team because similar to what happened with grovo i invested and was really i was probably one of her first advisors would would talk to shivani once a week from from the very beginning and then she gave a ted talk and chris sakra from lowercase heard her speak and was i think similarly inspired and similarly convinced and then when he when he came in and kind of you know was ready to to lead a, a really proper seed round she was like hey i could really use some help um and it was around the time that i was leaving grovo and it worked out really well and so we got to do a lot of stuff a lot of cool stuff together That's amazing. So so what was your role like there and what were some of the strategic areas you focused on? At the beginning it started in a, in a growth role and so Inventure's first products were focused on a future phone application. So 2011, 2012, 2013, you know, most emerging markets still were operating on future phones. They had like 80 plus percent future phone penetration in most of these markets. And so that was a great place to start. But what we quickly found is that the future phone workflow for Inventure was that someone would use a self-reporting tool to say this is how much i made this is what i spent on and we would then reward them with like a daily or weekly income statement but it would take a lot of manual data input from the user to start getting to enough of a data set that we could credit score them and then we'd hand them off to a bank the bank would decide whether or not they want to lend to them and then we would maybe find out whether or not the person repaid and it was just a lot of kind of like contingencies right a lot of steps to go through um and so the my first role as the head of growth and marketing I was the founding CMO at Inventure was like this product doesn't really work that well. And so we started, you know, a kudos to Shivani. I always say like I think Jeff is like one of the most relentless people that I know, but Shivani's Shivani's one of the more, most fearless. And so she just said totally open the book for us and she's like, "All right, let's figure out what we want to do instead." And we entered into rapid experimentation mode of something that would show the potential for product market fit and kind of rapid growth. Um and we eventually iterated into an experiment that was an Android application that would you would authorize it to take all the data off of your phone. And so the key thing with Android and smartphones is that there's frictionless data. The user doesn't have to input everything. We can use APIs to access the data that's already on their phone. So Facebook API. Um Android API gives us access to the SMS inbox which in emerging markets is fa- is amazing because so much money there is transacted from phone to phone through mobile money like Kenya's GDP more than 50% of it is actually transacted from one phone to another and all those receipts are stored in the SMS inbox and so it was a, it was an app that would take all the data on your phone with your permission um and we would lend against it ourselves we would have we had a really small budget that we could lend against and we were like we if this works right if people are willing to trade their data for access to this this uh, affordable efficient credit these were micro loans 
you know, up to $30, three week repayments periods, um, then we're going to be creating all the mechanics we need to make an awesome credit scoring algorithm and to make an awesome identity platform. And so we rolled it out as an experiment. It worked phenomenally well. I remember I turned on ads on Facebook at like 10 p.m. on a Monday night, expecting that maybe one or two people by Tuesday morning would have said yes. And before I could go to bed, we have like 30 actual loan applications come through the door. And meanwhile, we're like 10 people in Santa Monica and one person in Kenya who once a person would download the app and get the data on their phone, he would actually send like the loan himself from his phone. And we did that for long enough where we actually built a big enough data set where we could reverse engineer a credit scoring algorithm. And now that credit scoring algorithm like predicts repayment, I think better than FICO on any base, uh, any unsecure FICO based loan here in the US, like our credit scoring actually outperforms it. And you know, the company's doing fantastically well and has raised a bunch of money, is making money. It's really been amazing starting from a super lean, super kind of experimental uh, mindset. Wow, that's such, such an amazing story. So, so as you mentioned, InVenture also raised some money from lowercase capital, Google Ventures, Collaborative Fund. What was the process like for you, given that you were an early investor there? Yeah, I think like actually it's been a, luckily, not going to like it's been a common theme in a lot of the companies that I kind of like, I mean, a lot of people in my shoes probably wouldn't be investing in startups, but I, but I always have, and I think I always will. But I've been lucky where I've gotten in early and then, you know, really blue chip firms have come along. So Excel came in into Grovo after, after I, 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 I did, and, and Lowercase came in into InVenture, and with, with another company, they haven't announced yet. They've got some great, great people coming to the business as well. But uh, I think the, the process is, 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 is really helpful, right? Like, it's, it's a maturation process of, like, the early believers, you know, we're going to work with you really hands-on to the true seed and Series A investors who are going to mature the companies so your board meetings start looking a lot more like board meetings. The board packs start looking much, much deeper and much more in-depth. And it's just a, it's a wonderful process, right? And so Chris Socker from Lowercase always says that his kind of job is to become obsolete by the Series B round. Um, and in some ways, really, really early investors, part of your job is to become obsolete by the Series A round, right? So you might be a lot more hands-on in product and growth and marketing early on, but then you want to pass it on to people who've got massive networks to make business development introductions or really help with hiring or whatever it might be. And so I think that's just part of the process for everyone, and, and it's exciting. It's an exciting one to go through. So following your time at InVenture, you consulted with several companies working on product market fit. What are three key areas you'd provide some insights around for companies who are looking to grow? Yeah, so I mean, actually, I currently do this as well, which is consult and advise for companies. And so I think it comes down to three basic things that I like to focus on with them. And one is like this, this journey, this journey to product market fit. And I think the way I like to define product market fit is not just knowing that you have something that people want. It's knowing who wants your product in what ways and why, so you can start optimizing for that in some sort of growth focus. So uh, example would be not just knowing that like you've got 30% of people coming back month over month, right? That's helpful. Um, and that maybe is a good way to define that we've reached product market fit, but knowing who are those 30% of people, like what's the customer profile behind that? And what's the product experience that's leading to that? Because then you can try to bring that product experience to as many people as possible. And you can try to get as many of the customer profiles on the market side that you see are likely to have that kind of retention curve. Um, so that the first thing is product market fit. And a lot of that's, like we said, the stuff we looked at, doing core analysis, looking at data, running experiments in a systematic fashion and staying true to the mission um, while maintaining like kind of like team belief and energy. Well, while you're experimenting with things, people start really wondering like, what does this company actually do? And why did I take this job? Like, we, do we really have anything that's working? But if you're true to the method, then you end up in a place where you finally have something that's worth scaling. And so that's probably the second thing I like to work with companies on is that when you start seeing those quantitative 
proof points of product market fit, working with, with teams on, all right, which channels make most sense for you to scale? What are the like, kind of replicable growth formulas that we can repeat that is going to get you to a place where you're able to raise a lot more money to put kind of fuel on the fire? Um, and that's often like your big Series A or Series B round. And that's where I would often step out. And I think the third big thing I work with uh, my consulting advisory clients is, is just preparing CEOs for that. So um, a lot of it's like internally in the culture, like how do you mature your culture from a five-person team to a 30-person team? It's hard for a lot of people. Um, and that puts stress in the CEO as well. Creating an increasingly data-driven and communication-heavy company really helps as you scale over time. And the third thing is just owning your fundraising and messaging around the company. You kind of have to start showing more clarity and being a lot sharper with that over time. And so that would be the third thing that, that I like to work with CEOs and teams on. You're also the co-host of a show called Employees Only. What is it about and what motivated you to start it? I'm really excited about this. So I guess like what I currently do, right, is I advise, like we just advise and consult. I invest, as we're going to talk about, and then I test ideas that I believe in. And so the kind of like inspiration behind Employees Only is that like I've been an early employee, right? But I've always gotten a lot more recognition for being an investor. And I think there's a problem within the startup ecosystem these days where employees, especially early ones that take a significant amount of risk or entrepreneurs in their own right are under-celebrated. And that's just not a personal pet peeve or like, you know, like this uh, vendetta type thing. It's got systemic implications for, I think, an increasingly important part of the economy where the kind of like core narrative to being in startups right now is that you go work at a startup so you can learn how to do it so you can then start your own. The economics of startups reflected, like most cap tables are, are, are not rigged in the employee's favors, of course, and I think there are good reasons for that. But more importantly, from a narrative perspective, there's just not sufficient celebration of startup employees. So there's tons of content about like what it's like to be a founder and how to start a company. And there, there's so many great interview series around that and so many great blog posts, et cetera. And same thing around the investor side. We, we really glamorize investors who, who really, in most cases, are not all that hands-on with companies. And so part of the inspiration of employees only is just creating a way to, on a micro level, celebrate early employees and get their stories out um, in a way that encourages people to, to, to participate in startups in some capacity other than being a founder investor. Because the truth is, like, if we have everyone starting companies and everyone's going to start the same type of companies and there's going to be less awesome people working at less awesome companies, right? Everyone's going to, everyone's going to want to try to try to start their own company instead of going to work at one and maybe has a better chance of success or is doing something more compelling. And I think the second big thing is that I noticed that like I was just constantly being hit up by friends, family, family, friends, friends of family, family of friends about like, Hey, I'm thinking about getting into startups. I work at this consulting firm right now, or I've been in a big company. What's it like? What does a product manager do? What is like, uh, what is marketing? What is growth? Like just very little visibility into that world. And again, on a micro level in a way that's kind of fun for me, um, I want to try to create some content that can help solve that problem as well. That's awesome. And so what's the overall like process and, and format that you guys use to, to share these stories and, and information? Yeah. So we like my, my had a pretty strong opinion about this and it's still being validated, but I wanted to do something that was heavily produced. And to be honest, I was waiting for a lot of other people to do it. Like, I'm not so thrilled about being on video <laughs> personally. Like, I'm constantly being like, oh, my God, when, why am I doing this? But no one was doing it. Like, I, I love This Week in Startups, but there's just not that many early employees that get on This Week in Startups, right? And I love a ton. Of, I actually love what you guys are doing. I think we're really aligned in that sense. But um, a lot of other places weren't doing it. So I wanted to do something that would celebrate and really kind of like, 
I don't know, just like present startup employees in the best light possible. And so we do video, we do just one a month, which is a pretty heavily produced effort. Um, and it's a true side project. So we're scrapping it together on the weekends. I've got buddies of mine helping in all directions. We've finally got some sponsors and, and we've got some distribution now in emerging markets as well. So things are kind of picking up really organically. But yeah, we just have a conversation with an early employee uh, to understand like how they get into startups, what's it like to work at one, what's their role, what does that mean? What challenges do they face? They can tell. They get to tell the story of their company from kind of more maybe in a more insider's view, and we get to know about what they have uh, in mind next. And they can share general advice for people trying to get into them as well, trying to get into startups. Yeah, that's awesome. So you also recently started your own, uh, you know, VC group called the Inevitable Collective. So what really motivated you to start this? The Inevitable Collective is is just a manifestation of the fact that more and more people have been have been wanting to invest with me or alongside me, and so we just call it an investment vehicle and. Uh, yeah, it was just, you know, just there's nothing like supporting entrepreneurs that are trying to make incredibly important, incredibly difficult things um, come to life. And I started forming some theses around, you know, I think great technology at a very macro level accelerates inevitabilities. And so Inventor is a great example for me where this emerging global middle class, which is a key theme for the fund. Um, there's a notion that in 2014, I mean, this is not a notion, it's a stat, that there are about 1.8 billion people who spent between three and $20 a day in the world. Most of them in, in North America and Europe. By 2025, we're actually going to be almost 5 billion people that fit into that class and inflation adjusted. And the majority of them are not going to be, or not in North America and Europe, but they're going to be in the places I mentioned earlier, which is India, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's actually going to be in just 440, the majority, 50% of that growth or more is going to be in just 440 cities. And so started forming some core theses around things that accelerate inevitabilities, things that unlock kind of economic potential in informal or nascent markets, and started seeing some success in the prior investments, and, and we put it together. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. And so you've already invested in, in a few companies through the Inevitable Collective. So can you tell us a bit more about these investments and, you know, what really motivated you or got you excited about investing? Yeah, I like, I'm, as I said, I really like that massive, you know, kind of often obnoxiously ambitious vision. And, and usually there's some big macroeconomic implications. So uh, Grovo is focused on the productivity deficit that came about from the digital skills gap. Inventors focus on the credit gap, and, and it's got billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars, in latent commerce that can be unlocked when you introduce credit to emerging markets. Um, OK High is a company that's trying to introduce uh, addresses to emerging markets where there are 4 billion people who don't have a physical address, which not only has an impact on commerce and e-commerce specifically, um, like you can have an Android, and you can have a credit card, that's great, but if someone doesn't know where you live, they can't get you a package very easily. But it's also got a huge implication on emergency services, like ambulances getting to you on time and government services. Um, and identity and banking. And so I like that big macroeconomic kind of like ambitious vision, but I like to see at the very early stage something super scrappy, like a scrappy, clever take on this massive problem um, that's a specific lean MVP that's getting some traction. OK High is one of my favorite examples where they were able to get a partnership with one of Africa's biggest e-commerce providers by convincing a delivery guy to, to one of the delivery guys to install an app on their phone that could track their track their movements. And then he was able to go to that e-commerce uh, provider and say, look how much time your delivery person's wasting trying to find an address. And like those scrappy little MVP products really get me excited. Um, and I think the biggest part of seed investing is, is the people and seeing people that are uniquely committed to the problem that you're trying to solve and have already had multiple opportunities to quit where an objective person would say, I'm just not going to do this anymore, right? Like, I'm going to go take that consulting offer or I'm going to go back to my old company, whatever it might have been, like multiple opportunities to quit because I think for someone like me 
I like to see something in the entrepreneur that I don't see in myself. Um, and I think it's often an obsession with one problem, whereas I'm, you know, super interested and super inspired and super easily triggered in multiple different directions. I love seeing when someone has found that clarity of, of purpose to say that this is what I'm going to work on. And I think that those are kind of the unifying characteristics across the companies we invested in to date. That's awesome. Really looking forward to seeing uh, what else what else you guys do and, and what comes with, uh, of those companies as they continue to grow and, and do amazing things. Yeah, thank you. We're uh, doing, actually, we have another investment finalizing this week, but obviously I can't talk about it quite yet, but I'm excited about that as well. And and kind of like some of the core themes that we're interested in are, are emerging global middle class, like which venture and OK High fit into well. I'm also like really interested in professional reputation identity in, in developed markets. And so... Um, kind of what designers, what, what Dribble did for designers and Stack Overflow and uh, maybe GitHub have done for developers, seeing that happen kind of vertical by vertical and unbundling LinkedIn in that, in, in that fashion. Um, that's a thesis that we're really, really interested in. And that's kind of um, where our next investment is going to fall in. Cool. That's pretty awesome. And so recently uh, you actually launched a, a new newsletter called uh, Emerging that I, I came across on Medium um, and hadn't put quite two and two together and, and realized it was connected to this conversation we're having right now, which, which I think is pretty awesome. So you know, why did you decide to launch that newsletter and, and what was your overall or what is your overall goal with that? Yeah, again, this is another one of the experiments that I'm running and, you know, maybe maybe it's part of what Inevitable Collective does as well. But um, it's just like, you know, I think Fred Wilson really, he just came out and said it. And, and he was like, I think the next big white space for VC is in, in, in the developing world. And I love the boldness of that. And I fully, thoroughly agree. But there's just not that much visibility for a lot of people, right? Like you need to follow a completely different graph of people to get really good on Twitter, for example, to get really good insight into emerging markets, technology and startups, right? So there's certain, some people that I think cross over well, like Chamath, um, I think is really, Chamath Palihapitiya from Social Capital is really well versed in emerging markets. And a lot of people who are in tech in the US or in the West follow him. But, you know, there are only a handful of those people, right? So it's a whole new graph of people you need to follow. It's a whole new set of companies. It's a whole new set of variables. And it's a whole new set of, like, kind of verticals or, or themes that are really interesting, right? So it's not about social and location and ed tech, right? It's about digital identity and financial inclusion and um, food supply and, like, really massively kind of, like, macro themes that I think there's a lot of education for people to be to ca- to catch up on. And to keep up on like the, the pace of innovation in those places is insane, right? Because they're starting from such a low starting point that each week, each month, things are changing so fast, right? And so if you're at a place now where we're in Kenya, like I said, more than 50% of the GDP is transacted from phone to phone through a mobile money network that isn't, doesn't have a single bank behind it. It's run by a telco. You have in India where they're introducing digital identity to a billion people in a matter of months. And now they just rolled out like a payments platform on top of that. So these are the reasons why. Uh, and also, you know, my, my friend and, and colleague at InVenture, Shivani, thought it would be a cool idea to work on it together. And I've been looking for something to kind of work on with them. Again, it's one of the best, one of the best teams in the world that, that I've had experience to work with. So I'm just excited to work with them on it. Absolutely. That's really cool. So I know you hinted a little bit at it, but what sort of what's next for the Inevitable Collective and, and sort of what goes in, what, what goes into the process of creating that kind of investment vehicle? Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm figuring it out. <laughs> and like... I've, uh, I kind of went into it with a heavy level or heavy dose of intentionality. Like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to keep it specific, keep it focused. But, you know, I've just been having a lot of fun building and trying things. And so I'm kind of punting on defining the true brand and, and really announcing it to the world. But, you know, we're making a new investment. We're excited about that. We're going to be launching and sharing some new experiments. One's focused on helping 
helping people get their side projects off the ground, right? So I think the general theme of Inevitable Collective is that we're trying to be interested in things that people don't find sexy yet, but I think they're going to. So emerging markets, right? I think a lot of people are just kind of coming around to understand that what was formerly some of the poorest countries in the world are going to be the highest sources of growth. Employees, right? Like startup employees are not the sexy people in the startup community right now, but I think things are going to change in that direction. And the third thing is like experiments and side projects, right? A lot of incubators and accelerators in the world are moving increasingly further down to companies that have got more, more product validation, more revenue, more customers. Um, and I kind of want to go all the way back to the beginning and say, when someone just has an idea for something they want to see out in the world or an assumption they want to test, how do we help them bring it to life in a scalable format? So that's going to be the experiment that we're launching. Um, and then I need to formalize and can, you know, our advisory consulting service a little bit. So a lot of when I say our, it's mostly me plus, plus friends and, and, and colleagues and, and people I work with. But I think, you know, we're building a pretty good playbook for helping startups find product market fit um, and, and achieve early growth. Um, so, you know, trying to formalize that as well. That's amazing. I'm looking forward to, to seeing where things go in the next couple uh, months to years. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that. So what are some of the most recent apps that you've downloaded or used lately? So I just like, this might not be recent, but Typeform, I think, is like one of the most underrated companies and products in, in the world. I, I don't understand how it's not being talked about and used so, so amazingly. I mean, I mean, so, so actively because it's amazing. Typeform helps you create beautiful surveys in minutes, and that's an incredibly valuable tool when you're trying to experiment and learn, because often the most efficient way to learn something is to ask people questions. And the more rewarding, beautiful, and seamless of an experience of answering those questions can be, the more likely are you are to get data and get good data. So I think Typeform is a company and product that I'm really excited about. I also like just started... I had an idea a long time ago for an app that would let you do location-based gifting. So like if you know your friends going to a Mets game when they get to Shea Stadium or what's an city field, it would be a message that pops up on their phone. And there's an app that, that came out called Hi-Fi um, that I've been experimenting with and playing with that I'm excited about. Another one's called Workforce. It's in private beta right now. So I think you have to like apply to be part of it. But it, again, is another theme. It's a product that I actually built and started testing something similar. But it's basically trying to help us celebrate um, our achievements at work and our teammates in something in a more like kind of robust and, and meaningful and social fashion than, than LinkedIn, for example. I think behaviorally, that's, a, that's something that really needs to happen in the world. I also just started using MailChimp again. I, I tried a ton of different email newsletter services. So Tiny Letter Review, they're all good, but MailChimp is, is fantastic. So kind of going back to basics on that. And then not to engage in this like debate, but like I live in New York. And I, as I said, I go to the West Coast a lot. And so there's so many different ride apps or ride sharing and just ride ordering apps that I use all of them. I use Uber, I use Get, I use Lyft, I use Via. And I've basically taken myself out of that debate of like, what's the best business? And I'm just going for the one that gives me the best package, the best rate and the best car at the best at, 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 the, at the fastest time. Um, and so I'm just actively checking all of them to see what, what's the best. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so, so do you have any recommendations on great content that you've come across lately, either books, video or blog post? Yeah, so you mean besides emerging and employees only, right? And, and hack to start, and, and despite, despite, <laughs> besides hack to start too. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I'm a big fan of Social Capital, and they, they have a snippets um, thing that you can sign up for. So the folks there, you know, they're, they're learning a ton about all different types of markets and verticals and products and companies, and they send out a weekly newsletter of, their, of the most important things they think you need to know. Um, and so I'm a huge fan of that. I read something on Medium that I really liked the other day about... Um, the power of starting side projects, which is obviously something that, that's super important to me. 
So I would highly recommend that. Hopefully we can link, the pe- link people to that. And then uh, Boris, Boris wrote a really good piece on how to build a, a weatherproof company and meeting medium that I've also been kind of really, really into. Um, and I think the best source of content for me is my Twitter craft. So if anyone wants to know what I would recommend, I would say look at the people I follow on Twitter and look at what they're tweeting. And I've read, you know, 30 to 50 percent of that at, at any given point in the day. Yeah, for sure. Those are some awesome resources. We'll definitely make sure that uh, we link to those so other people can check it out. So do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you live by and you think others should know about? Uh, sure. I think probably it's not mine, right? Someone said, and I'll, I'll like maybe paraphrase it, but like the idea of like, don't ask for, don't wait for permission, just ask for forgiveness. Like I think you don't even really have to ask for forgiveness, right? Distribution is so democratic these days. Like that's the beauty of the internet that I didn't have to go pitch and you didn't have to go pitch a radio network or a TV network or whatever to get your content out in the world. You just had to say, I want to go, I want to make this content and I have to go find someone who's willing to speak to me and then I can put it on the internet. And so I think just don't wait for permission, right? So whether it's that you want to learn a skill, you don't have to sign up for some program that's going to cost $10,000. You can try to teach it to yourself first. If you have an idea for a product, you don't have to go build a product first. You can write a blog post explaining what your idea is and ask people to fill out a survey and you'll get data back on that, right? If you want to try to solve the credit gap in an emerging markets, you don't have to go partner up with a bank. You can literally build, you know, an Android application that just collects data off someone's phone and lend a couple hundred dollars out to people and start building your own credit scoring algorithm, right? Like, just don't wait for permission. Just try to like validate your assumptions in the most efficient way possible. Um, And I think a, a big part of that is getting vanity out of the way, right? The longer you can postpone vanity, the better I think your business and your outcome will be. So humility, I think, is a huge determinant of success in startups because if you want to be lean, you have to be humble. Otherwise, you just look sloppy. So that's another kind of thing that I, I, I kind of really reinforce. And the third thing that I'm really focused on right now is I think the world's a lot flatter than you think or a lot of people think. And again, a lot of this has to do with just the ease of distribution um, and just how, you know, like billions of people in the world are getting access to the internet for the first time in the next few years. And they're all joining Facebook and WhatsApp and these all these networks where it's easy to reach people with self-serve ads and it's easy to connect through brand pages and, and just general social networking that like you don't have to go spend your life in Africa or India or, or Asia your entire life if you want to build products for people there and you want to help them. You can do it, you know, you can do it in, 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 in a lot of ways directly from here. Those are all probably on the same themes, but maybe the last one that I that is kind of like the cause of the chaos in my career right now, but but, but that I love is like just don't waste time. Like I, I had my I had my son recently and it really made me realize like time is short, life is short, and so I'm trying to be as prolific as possible in, in the time that I have and, and, and worry about being prolific more than being perfect. Yeah, those are some solid points. Uh, AJ, thanks so much, man, for taking the time to chat with us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, me, uh, I, I really enjoyed it as well, guys. Thank you. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We couldn't do the show without your awesome support, so please leave us a review. Until next week.